I wanted to talk to you today about serving God. As uh, I noticed that a number of you here coming into Ironworks are getting involved in new areas of service where you're trying to step out and say, what can I do for the Lord? I know that a number of you have been serving God here uh, for a while. And I wanted to uh, help us see a certain dimension of what happens when we serve the Lord. Especially uh, when we get into a situation, we say, wow, this is more than I bargained for. This is tough, um, actually doing these things that I'm trying to do for God. Uh, that there might be some sweat involved. And I want to I help us to see what it means to be part of God's work by looking at uh, probably the greatest miracle that Jesus did in his ministry that's recorded in the Gospels. And that was when he fed over 5,000 people at once. So we want to look at this miracle because, you know, we tend to think of it's a great miracle. It's about the people being fed or it's, a, it's about Christ. But actually what I want to point out is that really this miracle that's been done is really about the 12 apostles. And I get that, actually, when we're about to read the passage. But before we do, I, I just want to let you know, I get that from looking at places like verse 37, where Jesus, before he does this miracle, he looks at the apostles and he says, you give them something to eat. A lot of different things he could have said. He could have said that a lot of different ways because he's going to multiply these loaves and fishes. He could, have, he could have said, you know, don't worry, I will give them something to eat because that kind of seems more appropriate, right? Or they're going to be provided for. God will provide for them. No, he looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. Or even the next verse, he says, what do you have? Um, in fact, if we note this as we're reading it, you'll, you'll, you'll see that the apostles, these 12 apostles, Jesus' inner circle, those who were really there to serve him, uh, to serve in the, in the work of the kingdom, they're in just about every sentence in this story. In fact, if you step back and look at this whole complex of events that begins with Jesus sending out these 12 on a missionary journey, which happens right before this, and then coming back in this whole event with his miracle, um, you, you, you can almost see Jesus stepping back and, and putting them forward. So it really is about them. And uh, I want to I set us up for the passage by just recounting their condition going into this day. So just so you realize how, they're, how they were, the condition of the apostles, as they're starting out this. They had just returned from a very exhilarating but also grueling missionary journey where they had been doing all sorts of marvelous things. I mean, it's terrific to have the demons obey you, but life on the road is always wearing, isn't it? <laughs> is it not? You know, when you go living on the road, you could be doing a lot of great things, but it starts to wear on you uh, just, just being out there all the time, traveling. So they had just gotten back from that, no doubt, exhausted. At the same time, John the Baptist, a great man in their lives, uh, has just died. He's been killed in a, in a way that was entirely, entirely unjust. And they are no doubt adjusting, emotionally adjusting to that event. Because here is John, this great man, a key man, a key leader, uh, 
in this whole kingdom coming project, you know, through whom a number of them had received the call. You know, for Jesus' disciples, um, a number of them were disciples of John first, and then after John, they were disciples of Christ. So this is a key man in their life, obviously a key leader for them, and here he's just taken out, just like that, on a, you know, on a whim, on a, on a, on a sexual scandal um, situation. And he's just, just taken out, just cut off. I mean, literally, head cut off. And they have to deal with this. And you imagine what that would do for them, what they're, what they're dealing with emotionally. It would be kind of like, uh, to take a more recent example, I, I remember like when um, Keith Green died a couple decades ago. Keith Green, was a, he was a Christian musician doing a lot of good things. I mean, he had just... He had uh, very impactful music, writing songs about not compromising. And he was making a big impact on, on not only the Christian circles, but outside of the Christian circles. He had a lot of talent. But not only did he have a lot of talent, his songs were very good, but he also was doing the music business in a very different way. He was actually leading the way and showing how to do music business in a Christianly way. Sometimes, you know, you look at Christian musicians and you think, eh, what's the difference between them and the world? You know, but Keith Green was really leading, uh, was really a pioneer in, in how he was approaching music, how he was marketing music. I mean, he was just doing so much good. And all of a sudden, 1980s, boom, he died in a tragic plane crash. So if you were familiar with his ministry, if you were familiar with him, you had to be kind of walking around at that point saying, like, God, what? why would you do this? How could this possibly be good? How could, you know, these disciples, they'd just come back from seeing Satan fall from the sky. But how could, the, how could Satan be falling if John got taken out? John died. So they're, they're emotionally adjusting to this. It's got to hit them like a truck. So... They're emotionally thin, they're weak, and verse 31, as we'll see, they're hungry as well. And I just want you to, to be aware of this because you might be able to identify if you are trying to serve God, you might ever, I just want to ask you if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you're feeling very weak from having, from having all the things that are going on going on while you're trying to serve him. And that is the start of this great day. Um, in the lives of these people. So please stand with me as we read what ensues. In Mark chapter 6, this is Mark's version of the great miracle, Mark chapter 6, from verses 30 through 44. Again, beginning in Mark 6.30. And the apostles came together to Jesus and announced to him everything, as much as they did and as much as they taught. And he said to them, You yourselves come by yourselves to a deserted place and relax a little. For those coming and going were so many that they had not opportunity even to eat. And they went by themselves in the boat to a deserted place. But many saw them going and understood, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and arrived before them. And coming out, Jesus saw a huge crowd and was moved with compassion for them because 
They were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And already the hour becoming late, his disciples came to him and said, The place is desert-like, and already the hour is late. Dismiss them, that they might depart into the surrounding fields and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And he answered and said to them, You, yourselves, give to them to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of loaves and give to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And knowing, they said, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to seat everybody in food-sharing companies upon the green grass, and they reclined in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And after he had received the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up into heaven and he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves in pieces and gave to his disciples that they might set them before the people, and the two fishes he divided before them all. And all ate and were filled up, and they took up broken pieces from, and from the fishes, 12 fullnesses of baskets. And those who ate were 5,000 men. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. So you can see the disciples' condition going into this, not good. They're already pretty exhausted. And Jesus, you notice, typically sensitive, typically sensitive. Jesus, in verse 31, says, you've got to pull away from this. Come away for a while. And by the way, you know, if you never hear God illuminating this verse, verse 31, to you, if you serve God and you never hear him saying, it's time to pull away, it's time for rest, if you never hear him say that to you, if you never understand him to be saying what he said in Matthew 11 to you, come all me to all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If, that's not, if that never uh, crosses your understanding, then you don't know God well. You're missing something about God. Because this is his pattern with people. This is his pattern with the disciples. He said, you know, there is a time. You need to pull away from this. You need to take a rest. And the word he uses, anapao, there, really does mean, it really does mean relax. Come and take some relaxation. So, you should be aware of this if you are serving God or trying to serve God. You are not faithfully executing his work if you never put it down. So that is what Jesus and these 12 men set out to do. They get into this boat alone and they go off to be by themselves. A couple hours sailing, probably, uh, probably most... Uh, most likely a place where they're going to is up north, the Sea of Galilee, maybe across uh, Jordan from Bethsaida. 
deserted place up there. And so they get in the boat and they're sailing along. And, you know, James is at the front of the boat as, as they're far away. And he looks at the shore and he says, wait, what's all that brown stuff on the beach? And as they get closer and closer, it turns out it's not brown stuff. It's people. And they land on the shore. Jesus gets out. There's an enormous crowd of thousands and thousands of people in front of them. So once again, disciples and Jesus cannot escape the needs of the world. And Jesus' response is to allow himself, once again, to be interrupted by his compassion. As we see, Jesus has a plan He tries to execute a plan, and he's interrupted, and he allows himself to be interrupted by his compassion. Once again, splagnizomai is the the Greek word, splagnizomai, just kind of literally from the entrails. Jesus responds from the gut to these people, and actually, get this, he welcomes the crowd. Even though they need rest, he welcomes them, the crowds. And so they are again immediately on the shore as they get out, ministering, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're casting out demons, they're healing, they're doing the work of the ministry again, right out of the boat. And I want to point out here, you should notice this, that the apostles are with the program. You know, apparently if you are an apostle of Jesus Christ, he expects you to be similarly interrupted by your compassion for people. And they are. They are doing it with him. They're laboring all of these hours now in the midday sun. And when they come and talk to him, it's clear that their concern is for the people, right? What do they say to him? They say, hey, hey, you got to let these people eat, right? They've been with Jesus before in this kind of a situation where there are lots of, there's a big crowd and it gets late and he's, they've seen him dismiss people before, and so they were looking at this situation. It was like, you know, maybe these people, they can go to some of these farms around here, goes into these towns, buy something to eat. But Jesus, it, it is time, you know, to shut down uh, so that people can get something to eat. And that makes sense, right? And so right in the, in the part of the story where you would expect now they are going to get their rest, instead, there is this miracle. What a miracle. We look at it and we say, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing. But I just want you, to, I want you to think about what this day would be like for the disciples. Okay? Because the disciples at this point, when the miracle starts, is beginning, okay? They're tired. They're even more drained now and still hungry. You say, well, maybe they ate something between, maybe there was something in the boat. Doesn't seem like it. They had to leave getting in that boat to come to this place in a hurry. And when they got out of the boat, they were ministering, and, and it doesn't seem like they had something in the boat. Why do I say that? Because John, in his gospel, John 6, where he, he also recounts this miracle, he makes a note of the fact that when Jesus asks them what they have, the food, they don't have anything. In fact, this, these uh, loaves, these five loaves and two fish, actually come from a little boy who happens to be around. So it's not even their food. So it seems like they didn't have uh, food in the boat. Probably not. Uh, and now what's involved and what, what's going to happen here? So they're still hungry. It's, it's interesting that 
uh, here in verse 39, Mark kind of uses restaurant terms. Well, you just think about the work that's involved in this miracle. And just do the math. Okay, you have 5,000 men, and at this point, Matthew, in his recounting of this miracle in his gospel, he, he takes note that, you know, it wasn't just men that were there. And this is typical of Matthew, who's counting things all the time. He likes to get the numbers right. And he does. He says, you know, besides the men, there were also women and children there. So how many people was it? Well, let's try to do the math. Let's say <clears throat> that for half of the men, there was one other person, a woman or a child. Now, there were probably a lot more than that. Actually, this is really probably an underestimate. There are probably a, a, a lot more people than that. But just, you know, to be conservative, for the sake of the argument, let's say for half of the men, there was one other person. That's another 2,500 people. So you've got, say, 7,500 people at least. Okay? And what do they have to do? They have to, they have to set, seat them in 50s and 100s, these, these big tables. Let me ask you, how many people have ever been a hostess at a restaurant here? How many ever had that job? Oh, okay. Do you remember if it was a big restaurant, what it was like on a busy night? Do you remember what that was like? Was it a peaceful job? Not getting that, no. Not a peaceful job. Well, this is what they had to do. They had to basically host these people. They had to seat these people in 50s and 100s. Now, you have 7,500 people, and um, Luke, in his recounting of this miracle, only mentions the tables of 50, tables, so to speak, of 50s, right? So probably most of them were 50s, and probably fewer of them were 100s tables of 100. So let's just say 5,000 of the people were seated in tables of 50. And another 2,500 were seated in tables of 100. 100 people each. So that's 125 tables. Big ones. Okay? 12 men, 125 tables. That means each man is responsible for at least 10 tables. Right? It's just the math. At least 10 enormous tables. And by the way, they're, it's, they're not traveling with their entourage here. You know, sometimes they had women and other people helping them as they're going along, but not here. It's very clear they got into the boat alone, right? They got out of the boat alone. The whole point was to get off by themselves. So they're the show. These 12 men have to seat all of these tables, at least 10 of these enormous tables themselves, and get them all divided up. And then they have to wait on them. You know, you notice that verse 41? It's very specific, right? This is not a buffet. This is not, well, everybody kind of line up and take it. No, the disciples themselves are supposed to serve the people. They're supposed to take the bread and the fish and take it to the people. How many people here have ever been waiters or waitresses? Okay, raise them up. Let me see. Look at this service industry-oriented congregation. <laughs> okay, so what was that like on a busy night? How many, how many of you who are waiters or waitresses ever served a table of 100 people? Okay, it's hard to imagine, right? Even those big crowds that come into the restaurant, you have to put the tables together for them, and there's, you know, they're coming from the office, and it's a party of 25, or like, oh, wow, that's, that's a lot of work. But 
Imagine a table of 50 or 100. This is, what the, this is the day that the disciples had. They had to wait on these tables, and it, it was very clear that they were, in Mark it says they were filled up. But in John, again, John chapter 6, John is, uh, makes the note that everybody had as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. So if you translate that into disciple hours, that means multiple trips back and forth while people were getting as much as they wanted to be, as Mark says here, completely filled up. So this was a big job. I mean, anytime you mix food with people, you're going to be there a while. So even though the day was late, there were more hours here going into the disciples serving. And then there were the problem people. You know. If you've been a waitress, you know. There were the problem people. Now you say to me, Sam, how do you know that there were problem people in this crowd? Well, let me just ask you. In a crowd of 7,000 people, what makes you think there would not be problem people? What makes you think there would be no problems in this at all? 7,000 people. You know? What kind of people do you think followed Jesus around on foot? People who had their lives all together? <laughs> people who are nice? Is that who they had to deal with? You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, uh, the extended family that went off by themselves and formed a table of 19. So that Thaddeus had to walk in among them and said, I'm sorry, you know, you're going to have to join a, gr- a larger group. We can't serve you off by himself. And then he gets, what? What are you talking about? You know, I'm sorry, you know, Jesus said we have to do in 50s and 100s so we, just so we can get this done so we can feed you. I sit where I want to sit. Get out of my face. It's like, okay, okay, yeah. Or how the other group, you know, that's, uh, that formed a group of 350, and Thomas had to walk in there and said, okay, break it up, break it up, break it up. Or the lady who saunters over to Bartholomew and says, Excuse me, excuse me. I, you know, I don't want to be a problem. I, I don't want to cause any problems here. But, you know, my son doesn't eat barley. And, and, and I was just wondering, do, do, do you have anything here besides bread and fish? So I, I don't want to be a problem. I just, I just want to ask. That is what the disciples' day was like. You say, where is it? It's supposed to be a miracle. It was a miracle. Do you think that miracles don't take hard work? Do you don't think that they take sweat? They do. And that's what they were like. Well, you say, at least after that, the job was over. You know, they'd hosted, they served two courses, so that everybody was filled. And then, the job was finished? No. How many, of you, how many here have ever been busboys? Okay, fewer, okay. Did you like that job, Ben? No, no. Did you like that job? It's okay. Did you want to make a career of it? Was it a nice, cushy position, being a busboy? No. Well, then the, the apostles now have to be busboys. 
They have to go around and carry, you know, get all the doggy baskets. Talk about sweat. So this is supposed to be a miracle, and yet it's such hard work. It's such hard, sweaty work. And, you know, if you take a step back, you see this is not just this miracle. If you look at the miracles of the Bible and actually look at the amount of work that went into them, the greater the miracle almost, (laughs) the the more work. You know, the greatest miracle preservation ever recorded, that ever happened in history, happened when God came to a man and said, build an ark. And if you go back and read that account, Genesis 6 through 9, and you, and you kind of read through it, it really does seem like the building of the ark took 100 years, just the way it seems to be written. Now, if you think about what Noah had to go through in the midst of certainly resistance and probably derision from the people around him, day after day, however long it took, year after year, planing and joining and pitching. That great miracle, that supernatural preservation, probably on a lot of those days, felt pretty natural. Or take the greatest victory over idolatry that we ever have recorded in the Bible was the contest of Elijah with the, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? And, you know, if you ever have a chance to go to Mar- Mount Carmel, you'll find it's very high. It's actually a mountain range, and probably where it happened was very high up. It'd be terrific to see it. <laughs> but you know what's up there? Not water. There's no water up at the top of, of Mount Carmel. And so unless there's a cistern around to get water up to that sacrifice, you have to go down to the bottom of the mountain, carry up these heavy buckets of water to douse the sacrifice. Not once, not twice, not thrice, seven times. It was a lot of sweat that went into that miracle. This is the way that God works the miraculous. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until the evening, says Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. So look at your life. Look at those of you who grow weary in serving God. Now, when we're talking about our lives here, we're not talking about miracles of redemptive historical proportions. Many of us not seen this kind of marvel But you know what? God still does marvels. He still does. By the way, if you want to see marvels like this, go and serve where the gospel is not and the gospel needs to be going. You will see marvels. But even in our lives, the context of our lives, in the work that we're doing, God is still working in different ways, doing wonderful things, and still same principle. So if you're taking care of this baby all day and you're thinking, man, when does this stop? This never stops. (laughs) And you're not realizing the marvel of what God is doing in raising up through your sweat someone who worships him, a true worshiper of the living God. You're in the same boat. 
Or, you know, if you're putting in all of these hours in your job, and you're saying, man, why is this so many hours that I have to work here? And you're not seeing how God is providing through you. You're in the same boat. Or if you have these, this ministry that you're involved with, ministry that you're doing, you're starting to say to yourself, why are there so many trials involved in this ministry? You are in the same boat. And this is very important for us to know that God still works this way. He uses your sweat to do marvels. Because if you forget that he does this, then you fall into, you know, the tendencies that, that we have in sweaty situations. In, in sweaty situations, there are two tendencies that we have. One is that we become blind. The sweat blinds us to Christ in the miracle. The other is that the sweat blinds us to the miracle in Christ. So let's say if you're having success in the effort that you're making, you're somehow, in there are different ways, all of you in different ways, you are serving God. And you're, you're have, you have a difficulty, but you are overcoming, you are doing good, and you're seeing success in your work. That, that, to be, that tends to be the time when the sweat blinds us, our own efforts blind us to Christ in what's going on. When you're providing for someone, who's really feeding them? Or to put it this way, if, is God's will done because you work hard? And the answer is no and yes. No, in that it is Jesus who is multiplying the loaves and the fishes. It's Jesus who's actually providing, but he likes to use your efforts. He doesn't have to use your efforts, but he likes to use your efforts. But if you forget that, you start to think, I am the miracle. Like, I'm the one who's doing this because of my hard work. It's not true. You know, there is no doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind, that the end of that day, the end of the day of this passage, there were people walking around saying, Philip fed me today. Like, I ate and had my fill today because of Philip. Philip gave me to eat. No doubt in my mind that people were walking around saying that. And yet, of course, that's what they got because they saw Philip in front of them. But it wasn't really Philip's work that brought about the provision. If Jesus Christ was not multiplying the bread and the fishes, then Philip's effort would have meant nothing. His sweat would have been of no avail, wouldn't have really helped. And it's the same way with us. And people around you might help you. <laughs> you know, this is the way we talk in, in our churches, right? Like, I was fed today by that minister, you know. And the ambiguity of the way that God works, it sort of it creates a situation where we can get blinded in that way. We can get confused about who the source is and who is really doing the providing. That's the one way, one tendency in a sweaty situation. But there's the other tendency in a sweaty situation. And that is when sweat blinds us to the miracle in Christ. That when you are not having success, you're not seeing the fruit that you want to see, right? what happens then, like in the, in the situation with Noah, the supernatural starts to feel pretty natural. And we don't appreciate the role that our sweat is playing in actually bringing about the will of God on earth. And if we, we, we get into this tendency, then we start to be like the disciples who 
after they were, they were then soon after faced with a very similar situation with 4,000 people, and they say the same thing. And it's like us. When we get overwhelmed, we start to forget what God is really doing through our sweat, how he is using us. And the reason why he does this this way is because God likes dirt. Do you know that, guys? God likes mud. He likes, he likes the material creation. He likes what he's made. He likes using your industry. doesn't have to use it, but he likes using it. That's just the way that he is. And so he will use our sweat. Christianity is not Christian science, and it's not Buddhism. He celebrates the things that he's made, and part of what he's made is your abilities that he wants to take and use, just like he used the apostles on that day. And that's why he wanted Noah involved. That's why he wanted Elijah involved. That's why he wanted the apostles involved. That's why he wants you to be involved. And your sweat, it matters to him. So instead of asking yourself, why is this so much work? Ask yourself instead, why, God, have you chosen to involve me in bringing about your will on the earth? Christ's provision doesn't erase the need for sweat. It means uh, that our sweat that we're feeling, is, is, it, doesn't, it means neither that Christ is not providing nor that we are the ones who are providing. Instead, it means the mystery of our involvement in God's affairs. So, there's one more detail that's important to note from this passage. One more thing that we should take note of here. And it's in verse 43. After it's all said and done and the dust clears, we find that there are 12 baskets of bread and fish left over. Why 12? You know, it's interesting that as I've been highlighting in this sermon, there have been, uh, there are four different accounts of this miracles because it's in all four gospels, you may know. And different apostles remember different parts or different details of the story. But everyone remembers this. All different uh, accounts of the apostles remember this detail, that after everything was finished, there were 12 baskets left over. Why? Because this is not just a story about Jesus' servants. This is a story about how Jesus Christ treats his servants. And you can understand this, this scene from the movies that you've seen, right? Because directors do this all the time. When they want you to know that something's going to happen, but they don't show it to you. They, they, know, they want you to know that something's going to happen next. They do something, and then they fade to black, and then you, you're supposed to figure out what happens next, right? And so in the movie, in the final scene, you know, they look into each other's eyes, and the music swells, and then they kiss, and then fade to black, right? And even though you don't see what happens next, you kind of figure out what happens next. You know what happens next based on the kiss. 
Well, that's what Mark is doing here in this account, in this final scene here. And so, (laughs) even though we don't see it, what do we see at the last scene? The 12 disciples are standing there, hunched over, having fed thousands and thousands of people, thoroughly spent, emotionally shredded, weak from hunger, and yet, in front of each, a full basket of bread and fishes. What is God saying there? He's saying that, you know that R&R I promised you? That's important to me. You're going to get that too. Your, your sustenance, your rest is important to me also. So I will give you rest, even if it's through your labors. So this is God's kiss after a fade to black. He's saying, after you fed others, I will feed you also. That's how important you are to me. And so these 12 baskets are God's kiss before a fade to black. And we know what happens next.